Chapter 9 of J. S. Bach by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by Ernest Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Appearance, Nature, and Character. In the conflicts that agitated his life and embittered his soul, Bach does not always appear in a sympathetic light. His irritability and his stubborn belief that he was always in the right can neither be excused nor glossed over. Least of all can we find excuse for the fact that at the first he would be too easygoing, would always remember too late what he called his rights, and then, in his blind rage, would make a great affair out of what was merely a trifle. Such was Bach in his relations with people whom he suspected of a desire to encroach upon his freedom. The real Bach, however, was quite another being. All testimonies agree that in ordinary intercourse he was the most amiable and modest of men. He was, above all, upright and incapable of any injustice. His impartiality was well known. It was particularly evident in the judgments he was so often asked to give upon organ matters. In these affairs he was dreaded for his strictness, for nothing escaped his sharp eye. Whether it was an examination of candidates for an organist's post, or the scrutiny of a newly erected organ, in either case he was so conscientious and impartial that, as Forkel says, the number of his friends was seldom increased by it. It even made enemies for him. When, for example, the young Scheiber was a candidate with Gorner and others in 1729 for the post of organist at St. Thomas's, it availed him nothing that his father, the organ builder, was a friend of Bach. The latter declared for Gorner, with whom he had had so many tussles, and whose arrogant nature could not be sympathetic to him. Scheiber bore them both a lifelong grudge for it. To his indignation, we owe a highly interesting criticism of Bach in the Hamburg Christische Musicus of 1737. The master was hurt by it, but his relations with the elder Scheiber remained unaffected. He still expressed himself very favorably upon his work after the article, as he had done before. Bach was more than impartial, he was benevolent. If, when trying an organ, he found that the sum agreed on was too small in comparison with the good work that had been done, so that the builder would make only a little profit, or perhaps an actual loss, he did not hesitate to recommend the congregation in question to make an additional payment, his suggestion being often adopted. The organ examiners of our own days would do well to follow his example in this regard and to impress upon congregations the necessity for paying prices for organs on which art and the builders can subsist, instead of accepting only the lowest tender. If Bach could do any one a service, he never refused. When his pupils were trying for a situation, he exerted himself most warmly on their behalf. In circumstances like these, he did not mind writing to the church authorities in the most submissive terms. Along with this kindness, there went an agreeable modesty. The man who faced his superiors with a pride that must necessarily have offended them, let no one else feel his superiority. His modesty was not the hypocritical and conceited thing in which celebrities often love to drape themselves 
in order to bulk still larger in the eyes of the world. But the sane and healthy modesty that comes from the simple consciousness of one's own worth. He always preserved his dignity, even when writing to kings. The petitions he addressed to his sovereign are couched in the submissive formulae of the epoch. But behind these formulae, prescribed by custom, a resolute pride is evident. We can read between the lines. I, J. S. Bach, have the right to demand this of my prince. The document he sent to Frederick the Great with the musicalicious opfer is in a somewhat different tone. He writes to him as his equal, in spite of the respect that he pays to his royal dignity. Divested of its fine courtliness, the letter runs, Johann Sebastian Bach regards it as the greatest honor to add something to the fame of Frederick the Great by publishing a work based on a theme of his invention. He criticized the work of his pupils severely, but gave praise wherever he could. Upon other musicians, he never passed an opinion. Even his triumphs over others, he was unwilling to hear discussed. Forkel tells us that he never mentioned voluntarily his musical contest with Marchand. The full details of that victory are well known. Marchand, 1669 to 1732, court organist to the king at Versailles and titular organist at several churches in Paris, had fallen into disfavor with his royal master in 1717 and had betaken himself to Germany. At the Dresden court, his elegant style of playing made so good an impression that the king promised him an appointment. The idea of measuring the Frenchman and Bach against each other in artistic rivalry came from Volumier, the leader of the court band. According to Forkel, Bach was summoned expressly for this purpose to Dresden by a message from the king. It is more probable, however, that he had gone to the court to hear the famous artist and to learn from him, and that, being there, it occurred to his friends among the Dresden musicians to give Marchand, whose overbearing and vainglorious character must have made him unpopular, a dangerous antagonist in the person of the simple Weimar conductor. Bach informed Marchand by letter that he was prepared to perform any musical task that he chose to set him, if he, on his side, would accept the same obligation. The whole company took the liveliest interest in the contest, which was to take place in the house of the minister, Count Fleming. The invited audience, the referees, and Bach were there at the appointed time, but not Marchand. When they sent for him, they learned that he had left early in the morning in post-haste. Bach accordingly had to play alone, which he did to the admiration of all. It is a curious fact that he received from the court neither a gift nor an order for this affair. Forkel affirms that the king had intended him to receive a hundred louis d'or, but that they never reached him. They were probably intercepted by court officials. When asked how he had managed to bring his art to such perfection, Bach usually answered, I have had to work hard. Anyone who will work equally hard will be able to do as much. Even in his dealings with pretentious artists, he did not lose his amiability and did not let it appear that he had seen through their vanity. One day, seemingly about 1730, the Brunswick organist Heinrich Lorenz Horlebusch visited him, not to hear Bach, but for Bach to hear him play the clavichord. Bach, says Forkel, received him in a friendly and courteous way, 
and listened with patience to his playing, which was quite ordinary. When Hurlebush was leaving, he gave to Bach's eldest son a printed collection of his sonatas, exhorting them to study them diligently, they who had already studied such very different things. Whereupon Bach only smiled and did not behave any the less graciously to his visitor. Forkel dwells especially on Bach's modesty. The composer's sons, from whom Forkel got his information, took care that this trait in the character of their father was properly emphasized. They wanted to give a dementi to the wild stories that were current about him, as he himself had tried to do when living. Forkel expressly contradicts the legend that Bach would sometimes go into a church disguised as a poor village schoolmaster and ask the organist to be allowed to play a chorale merely to enjoy the astonishment his playing created among the company, or to hear the organist say, it must either be Bach or the devil. The friendly modesty of Bach's attitude towards all artists was a matter of common knowledge to his contemporaries. We find a corroboration of it in a dedication addressed to him. Georg Andreas Sorge, court and town organist to the Count of Reuss and Plough at Lobenstein, was impelled, although he was not Bach's pupil, to dedicate to the prince of all clavichord and organ players some quite insignificant clavier pieces of his own, and in the dedication he commends him for the fact that the great musical virtue that your excellency possesses is embellished with the excellent virtue of affability and unfeigned love of your neighbour. His attitude towards Handel indeed shows how Bach admired whatever he thought great without a touch of personal vanity. It was not his fault that he and his great contemporary never met. Handel came from England three times to visit his native town of Halle. The first time was in 1719, when Bach was living in Koten, only four miles from Halle. Bach set out at once to visit the famous artist, but when he arrived, Handel had just left. When the latter came a second time to his native town in 1729, Bach was in Leipzig, but ill. He sent his eldest son, Wilhelm Friedemann, with a most courteous invitation to Handel to visit him in Leipzig. Handel regretted that he could not come. At the time of Handel's third stay in Halle, Bach was dead. He regretted all his life not having known Handel. His longing to meet him certainly did not come from the desire to pit himself against him. In Germany such a contest was indeed desired, for comparisons between the two men were always being made. It was universally admitted that Bach would be the victor on the organ. Bach's wish, however, was not to compete with him for preeminence, but to learn from him. How highly he valued him is seen from the fact that, assisted by Anna Magdalena, he made a manuscript copy of A Passion by Handel, which points to the fact that he also performed it. The copies that he made of other men's music are, on the whole, the finest testimony to his modesty. Long after the time when he could regard himself as anyone's pupil, he made copies of Palestrina, Frescobaldi, Lotti, Caldara, Ludwig and Bernhard Bach, Telemann, Kaiser, Grigny, Dupas and many others. Sometimes we ask ourselves how it was that his critical sense did not stop him every now and then in his copying. It seems incomprehensible to us that he could bring himself to copy out whole cantatas by Telemann. But these men were acknowledged masters. He respected them and was desirous of spreading their works. Which of the contemporary composers troubled to make a copy of the St. Matthew Passion, 
with the view of preserving that work for posterity. Bach took thoroughly to heart the injunction to be always hospitable. Any lover of art, stranger or fellow countryman, says Forkel, could visit his house and be sure of meeting with a friendly reception. These sociable virtues, together with his great artistic fame, caused his house to be rarely free from visitors. The members of the numerous and wide-branching Bach family, who happened to be in Leipzig for their studies, were always heartily welcomed by him. His cousin Johann Elias Bach, cantor at Schweinfurt, who in 1739 had stayed a long time in Leipzig, still remembers gratefully, in 1748, the sociable friendliness shown him in the house adjoining St. Thomas's Church, and felt himself bound to send his famous relation a small cask of new wine. When it arrived, it was two-thirds empty, and contained no more than six quarts. Bach tells the sender this on the 2nd November, 1748, gives him an account showing how much the present has cost him, and adds the request not to let his kindness put him to such expense again. The conclusion of the letter runs, Although my worthy cousin is good enough to offer to send me some more of the same liquor, I must decline on account of the excessive expenses here. For the freight were sixteen grams, the delivery two grams, the inspector two grams, the town excise five grams three fenig, and the general excise three grams, so that my good cousin can calculate for himself that it cost me nearly five grams a measure, which is much too expensive for a present. This letter is at the same time a testimony to Bach's sense of economy in household affairs that is so strongly noticeable in other things. He was very particular in money matters. During his struggle with Gorner over the university church, he put the financial question in the forefront. In the letter to Erdmann, he cannot help showing his indignation over the healthy year 1729 when the Leipzigers took so little pleasure in dying that the burial fees brought the cantor a hundred thalers less than usual. He tells his cousin Elias Bach of Schweinfurt, who had asked him for a copy of the Prussian Fugue, that it is out of print at the moment, but that he may inquire again in a few months and remit the necessary thaler at the same time. In all these cases, there is indeed nothing more than a certain frankness in the treatment of money matters, which in the case of a man with so large a family is partly natural. That Bach was not avaricious is proved by the hospitality he dispensed. His business sense, however, seems not to have been unknown to his fellow townsmen. Rector Ernesti, the younger, takes advantage of this in his fight with the cantor, and ventures to assert in a document addressed to the council that Bach is not insusceptible to money when making recommendations for admission among the alumni, and that many times an old species thaler had made a soloist of one who was no soloist before. The responsibility for this slander must be borne by the man who dared to utter it. The economical sense of the father came out very strongly in Emmanuel so strongly as to throw a certain shadow over his artistic nature. As early as 1756, the way in which he announces that he is prepared to sell the plates of the art of fugue at any decent price makes an unpleasant impression on us. When, in 1785, G. F. G. Schwenker, a pupil of Emmanuel Bach and of Kernberger, 
was trying for the post of organist at St. Nicholas's in Hamburg, he was unsuccessful in spite of his splendid playing at the examination. The appointment went to the son of the deceased organist Lambo. Schwenker thus refers to the matter in a letter. If Herr Lambo, who for the most part played miserably, worked his theme out well, it was probably because he had previously studied it, and therefore probable that Bach had been bribed. He was avaricious enough for this. Here again the responsibility for the calumny must lie with the man who uttered it. It is certain, however, that Emmanuel had the reputation of being avaricious. One of his friends, Reichardt, writing on him after his death in the Musical Manach for 1796, said that, even towards young artists who came to him full of the desire of learning, he was in the highest degree mercenary. A letter of his writing in June 1777, while his son was hovering between life and death in Rome, is characteristic of him. My poor son in Rome, he says, has been down for five months with a very painful illness and is not yet quite out of danger. Oh God, how my heart suffers! Three months ago I sent him fifty ducats, and in another fortnight I shall have to pay another two hundred thalers for doctors and surgeons. On the other hand, this man, who in the midst of his anguish over his son still has an eye to his money, was as hospitable as his father had been. He had also inherited the family feeling. As we have seen at the division of the property, he was greatly irritated with the fifteen-year-old Johann Christian, because the boy maintained that the father had made him a present of three pedal claviers. Nevertheless, he afterwards took charge of him and brought him up. In one thing only did the family spirit forsake him. He did not take his stepmother in her hour of poverty, and allowed her, two years after the death of her husband, 1752, to beg for alms from the council, that he had so proudly withstood, and finally let her die in receipt of poor relief on 27th February, 1760. Even if he felt no special sympathy for her, and was himself not in flourishing circumstances, he owed it to the honour of his father to save Magdalena Bach from want. Thus Bach's economical sense became meanness in his second son. Friedemann, the firstborn, inherited his father's obstinacy of spirit and was ruined by it. In the portraits in which Bach's physiognomy has been preserved for us, we can read a good deal about the nature and the bearing of the man. Until about twelve years ago, virtually only two original portraits of the master were known. One was in the possession of the firm of Peters, the musical publishers. It had been the property of Philip Emmanuel, whose daughter sold it in 1828 to Greuter, a flute virtuoso and conservatoire inspector at Leipzig. The other belongs to the St. Thomas's School, to which it was presented in 1809 by August Eberhard Müller, the successor of Hiller in the Cantorate. To hang it up in one of the schoolrooms was no doubt natural but not the best thing for the picture, for Bach had to submit in effigy to the humours of the later Thominers, and more than once served as target for missiles of all kinds. Both pictures are signed with the same name, Hausmann, which is a little astonishing, since they show notable differences in execution. Both have suffered not a little from being painted over at a later date. The portrait in the St. Thomas school is perhaps the one that Bach had painted, 
when he joined the Misler Society, the statutes of which ordained that a new member must contribute his portrait well painted on canvas to the library of the society. For in this portrait Bach holds in his hand the canon triplex a six walk, which he submitted to the society as his qualifying work. As Bach joined the society in the summer of 1747, this portrait would depict him in his latest years. A third authentic portrait of Bach used to be at Erfurt, in possession of the organist Kittel, the last pupil of Bach. It probably belonged at one time to the ducal family of Weissenfels. After Kittel's death in 1809, it was, in accordance with his wishes, hung up on the organ. During the Napoleonic Wars, when the church was used as a hospital, it disappeared from the edifice with other valuable paintings. The French soldiers, no doubt, sold old Bach to the marine store dealer for a few glasses of brandy. The well-known Bach portrait by C.F.R.R. Lischweski in the Joachimstall Gymnasium in Berlin was not painted until 1772, 22 years after Bach's death. It is interesting because it is clearly not derived from either the Peters or the St. Thomas School portrait and so presupposes another original. It shows Bach, the face, sitting at a table with some music paper, as if about to run through, on the adjacent piano, some composition that he has just finished. An entertaining story of a Bach portrait is thus told by Zelter in a letter to Goethe. Kirnberger had in his room a portrait of his master, Sebastian Bach, that I have always admired, hanging over the piano between two windows. A wealthy Leipzig linen merchant who had of old seen Kernberger, when he was a thomener singing at his father's door, come to Berlin, and resolves to honour the now famous Kernberger with a visit. Scarcely had the Leipziger sat down when he cries out, Eh, hey, good Lord, I see you have our cantor Bach hanging there. We have him also in Leipzig, in the St. Thomas School. He was a rough fellow. If the vain fool hasn't had himself painted in a splendid velvet coat, Kernberger quietly gets up, goes behind the man's chair, and, taking hold of his visitor with both hands, calls out, first softly, then crescendo, Out, dog! Out, dog! My Leipziger, in a moral fright, runs for his hat and stick, opens the door as fast as he can, and bolts into the street. Kernberger now has the picture taken down and cleaned the chair of the Philistine washed, and the picture covered with a cloth again put back into its place. When anyone asked him what the cloth was for, he answered, Never mind, there's something behind it. This was the origin of the report that Kernberger had lost his reason. It was always a matter of regret that, having neither a death mask nor a skull of Bach, it was impossible to model a reasonably true bust of him. His grave was unknown. It was only known that he was buried in St. John's churchyard, and, as the sexton's receipt shows, in an oaken coffin. There was a tradition that the grave was on the south side of the church, six paces from the door. The churchyard had long been converted into a public place, when, in 1894, after the dismantling of the old church, excavations for the extension of the foundations of the new church were begun at the spot where Bach's bones should be resting. Here they were discovered on 22nd of October, 1894, three oaken coffins. 
one contained the bones of a young woman another a skeleton with the skull in pieces the third the bones of an elderly man not very large but well built the skull exhibited at the first glance the characteristic features that one would have expected from the picture of bach's head prominent lower jaw high forehead deep-set eye sockets and marked nasal angle the identity of the skull with that of the cantor of st thomas's is thus as good as certain more certain than in the case of the schiller skull for example among the interesting peculiarities of bach's skull may be mentioned the extraordinary toughness of the bone of the temple that encloses the inner organ of hearing and the quite remarkable largeness of the fenestra rotunda the plaster cast shows that the two upper flexures of the temple in which the musical faculty has of late been supposed to be located were not extraordinarily developed in him a leipzig sculptor sefner then tried to model the features upon a cast of the skull after copious researches had been made into the relation of the fleshy parts of the face to the bony parts in elderly people in order to settle the course of the line of the skin over the line of the bones the bust thus obtained shewed not only a surprising similarity to both of the bach's portraits but even surpassed them in vivaciousness and characteristic expression recently professor fritz wolbach of mainz has discovered yet another portrait of bach it is a realistic piece of work showing the face of a man who has tasted of the bitterness of life there is something fascinating in the harsh expression of these features which are painted full face run the hard lines of an inflexible obstinacy it is thus that the cantor of st thomas's may have looked in his last years as he entered the school where some new vexation or another was awaiting him in the two other portraits the severity is softened by a touch of easy good nature even the short-sighted eyes look out upon the world from their half-closed lids with a certain friendliness that is not even negated by the heavy eyebrows arched above them the face cannot be called beautiful the nose is too massive for that and the underjaw too prominent how sharply this projected may be estimated from the fact that the front teeth of the lower jaw are level with those of the upper instead of closing within these in the attempt to mitigate this peculiarity somewhat the hausman portraits cease to be characteristic the longer we contemplate it the more enigmatic becomes the expression of the master's face how did this ordinary visage become transformed into that of the artist what was it like when bach was absorbed in the world of music was there reflected in it then wonderful serenity that shines through his art in the last resort the whole man is for the most part an enigma for to our eyes the outer man differs so much from the inner that neither seems to have any part in the other in the case of bach more than in that of any other genius the man as he looked and behaved was only the opaque envelope destined to lodge the artistic soul within in beethoven the inner man seizes upon the outer man uproots him from his normal life agitates him and inflames him until the inner light pierces through him and finally consumes him not so with bach he is rather a case of dualism his artistic vicissitudes and creations go on side by side with the normal and almost commonplace tenor of his workaday existence without mixing with or making any impression on this bach fought for his everyday life 
but not for the recognition of his art and of his works. In this respect he is very different from Beethoven and Wagner, and in general from what we understand by an artist. The recognition that the world gave to the master of the organ and the clavier, really only the external and contemporary side of his artistic activity, he took as a matter of course. He did not ask the world for the recognition of that part of his work that was not of his own age, and in which his deepest emotion found expression. It did not even occur to him that he should or could expect this from his epoch. He did nothing to make his cantatas and passions known, and nothing to preserve them. It is not his fault if they have survived to our day. A modern student of Bach has said, apropos of some of the later chorale cantatas, in which the expert in Bach's scores notices a certain weakening of invention, that his whole work can be understood only as a mighty struggle for recognition, in which fight he was finally crippled. Bach was certainly crippled at that time, not, however, in the struggle for recognition, but in the struggle for good cantata texts, in which he was finally thrown back again upon the chorale cantata, and in a kind of fit of desperation distorted chorale strophes into arias. But this phenomenon has nothing to do with Bach's artistic life. The unique thing about him is precisely the fact that he made no effort to win recognition for his greatest works, and did not summon the world to make acquaintance with them. Hence the kind of consecration that rests upon his works. We feel an unaffected charm in his cantatas, such as we do not meet with in other artworks. The grey volumes of the old Bach Gesellschaft speak a moving language. They discourse to us of something that will be imperishable simply because it is big and true something that was written not in the hope of recognition, but because it had to come out of him. Bach's cantatas and passions are not only children of the muse, but also children of leisure, in the honourable and profound sense that this word had in the old days, when it signified the hours of a man's life that he employed for himself and himself alone. Bach himself was not conscious of the extraordinary greatness of his work. He was aware only of his admitted mastery of the organ and clavier and counterpoint. But he never dreamt that his works alone, not those of the men all around him, would remain visible to the coming generations. If it is one of the signs of the great creative artist born before his time, that he waits for his day, and wears himself out in the waiting, then was Bach neither great nor born before his time. No one was less conscious than he that his work was ahead of his epoch. In this respect he stands perhaps highest among all creative artists. His immense strength functioned without self-consciousness, like the forces of nature, and for this reason it is as cosmic and copious as these. Nor did Bach reflect whether the Thominus could perform his works properly, or whether the congregation understood them. He had put all his devotion into them, and God at any rate certainly understood them. The SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be praise, and the J.J., Yesu Yuva, Help Me Jesus, with which he garnishes his scores, are for him no formulas, but the credo that runs through all his work. Music is an act of worship with Bach. His artistic activity and his personality are both based on his piety. If he is to be understood from any standpoint at all, it is from this. For him, art was religion and so had no concern with the world or with worldly success. It was an end in itself. 
Bach includes religion in the definition of art in general. All great art, even secular, is in itself religious in his eyes. For him the tones do not perish, but ascend to God like praise too deep for utterance. Figured bass, he says in the rules and principles of accompaniment that he gave his pupils, is the most perfect foundation of music. It is executed with both hands in such a manner that the left hand plays the notes that are written while the right adds consonances and dissonances thereto, making an agreeable harmony for the glory of God and the justifiable gratification of the soul. Like all music, the figured bass should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the recreation of the soul. Where this is not kept in mind, there is no true music, but only an infernal clamor and ranting. The Orgel Buchlein, Little Organ Book, the collection of small chorale preludes that Bach put together in Kilton, is adorned with the following dictum. Dem hoxten got allein zu ehren, dem nachsten draus seek zu belleren. For the glory of the Most High God, and for the instruction of my neighbor. Lastly, musical education also belonged to the sphere of religion, and so Bach wrote in Friedemann's Klavierbuchlein, little clavier book, over the first piano pieces he gave to his eldest son, in nomine Jesu. At the same time he recognized that there was a species of art whose only purpose was entertainment. He did not rank it highly, as we see from his somewhat satirical reference to the little songs of the Dresden Opera, when he asked Friedemann to accompany him there. All the same, when he was in the mood, he could shake little songs that bordered on the burlesque out of his sleeve, as if he had to give himself up to heartfelt laughter now and then, in order to get back again to proper seriousness. His culture was not merely serious but religious. In the inventory of the property he left, we find a large number of theological works, among them a complete edition of Luther's writings, Tauler's sermons, and Arndt's Vares Christentum. Polemical literature is well represented, and it enables us to see that Bach's views were strictly Lutheran. In Coton, he would not permit his children to attend the Reformed school, but had them taught in the newly founded Lutheran school. To pietism also he was sharply opposed. When he was in Mulhausen, there was a struggle between an orthodox and pietist divine there. He took the part of the representative of rigid Lutheranism, Georg Christian Eilmar, who appears to us in anything but a sympathetic light in his controversy with his older colleague Frohner. He must have had close personal relations with Eilmar, for he asked him to be the godfather to his first child. As for the real points at issue in that epoch, Bach was as little conscious of these as his contemporaries were. Pietism was unsympathetic to him as a disintegrating innovation. He was dogmatically opposed to the representatives of orthodoxy. The submissive humility which the disciples of Spener affected was antipathetic to him. In addition, pietism was fundamentally inimical to art of any kind in worship and was especially set against the concert style of the church music. The musical performances of the Passion were a particular abomination to it. It wished the service to be adorned only with simple congregational hymns. So every cantor necessarily hated the pietists, and Bach took it particularly ill of them that they dragged his religious and artistic ideals in the dust. Nevertheless, we possess no utterance of his, written or verbal, against the new sect. 
For all that, his own works exhibit visible traces of pietism. The texts of the cantatas and passions are strongly influenced by it, as indeed the whole of the religious poetry of the early eighteenth century is. It can be seen in the reflections and the sentimental attitude with which Bach's librettes were so conversant. Thus the opponent of pietism invested with his music poetry filled with a breath of pietism, and so made it immortal. In the last resort, however, Bach's real religion was not orthodox Lutheranism, but mysticism. In his innermost essence, he belongs to the history of German mysticism. This robust man, who seems to be in the thick of life with his family and his work, and whose mouth seems to express something like comfortable joy in life, was inwardly dead to the world. His whole thought was transfigured by a wonderful, serene longing for death. Again and again, whenever the text affords the least pretext for it, he gives voice to his longing in his music, and nowhere in his speech so moving as in the cantatas in which he discourses on the release from the body of this death. The epiphany and certain bass cantatas are the revelation of his most intimate religious feelings. Sometimes it is a sorrowful and weary longing that the music expresses, at others a glad, serene desire, finding voice in one of those lulling cradle songs that only he could write. Then again, a passionate, ecstatic longing that calls death to it jubilantly and goes forth in rapture to meet it. As we listen to arias like Schlumert en ihr Mulden Augen, Ach Schlager doch bald, Selger Stunter, or the simple melody Komm Susser Tod, we feel that we are in the presence of a musician who is not merely bent on rendering into tone the thoughts of his text, but has seized upon the words and made them his own, breathing into them something of himself that was yearning for expression. This is Bach's religion as it appears in the cantatas. It transfigured his life. The existence that, considered from the outside, seems all conflict and struggle and bitterness, was in truth tranquil and serene. End of chapter 9. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.